Digital Deacon Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome along to the Digital Deacon Podcast with our sermon for this Sunday. <coughs> As you have just heard, I've got a bit of a cough at the moment. I'm going to try and do all of this podcast in one take because, well, we're all in the same boat together and you can't catch anything from me if I cough in front of you and I'm not allowed to cough in front of my family at the moment, hence I am relegated to my study while they're all at worship in the living room. So this week, looking at the readings for the fifth Sunday in Lent, year A. Now, on Twitter about a week ago, I had a look at the readings for this Sunday and I made a prediction about what the vast majority of sermons would use as their topic. There was a particular verse in John's Gospel where he's given his account of uh, Lazarus, <coughs> which I think bears a particular message for today's current situation. And as we go through the, the sermon, I want to see if you can spot it, because I've not actually gone with that part of the reading as my main emphasis, mainly because <coughs> with all of the busyness of the week and trying to get back into doing all of my work digitally, um, I've not had the time to write out the sermon, so I've dug one out from the deepest, darkest vaults of my computer, which is actually for the readings for this Sunday. Um, but it's not one that's new. So although there are plenty of occasions where I could make reference to COVID-19 and the quarantine and the fact that we are ill and locked away from each other, um, I've not opted for that. I've going to keep going with what was already written and then at the end we'll talk a little bit about this particular verse within the reading. I'm not even going to read out the entire reading because it's actually within the text of the sermon. So this morning we're going to look at the gospel reading as if we were doing a bible study, looking at each bit of the story as we go along, trying to make connections as we go. On the outside, it seems like quite a straightforward miracle story, this raising of Lazarus. But as is often the case, there's more to this Bible story than meets the eye. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and wiped them with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Master, the one who you love is very sick. This miracle is one of several recorded in John's Gospel as proof that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. But these verses give us proof of something else as well. Jesus was not just fully God, he was also fully human. While God might love us all equally, it is part of human nature to form deeper relationships with some human beings more than others. Jesus had friends, and Jesus had best friends. Do you have a best friend? What would you do if you heard that they were very ill? Strangely, Lazarus's name was actually the short form of Eliezer, which means God has helped. 
But what happens next must have got people wondering. Was he going to get any help from his friend? When Jesus got the message, he said, This sickness is not fatal. It will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's Son. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. One of Jesus' best friends was sick, and he is called for help. He decides to stay for another two days instead of rushing to help. We don't even find out what he was up to for those two days. But the message seems to be that Jesus' mission was not to be at the beck and call of his friends when they were in need, but to glorify God. It's only the same as when Jesus' mother asked for his help at the wedding at Cana. Although he did relent on that occasion and go and help, he was a good Jewish boy after all. And good Jewish boys listened to their mothers, but he didn't seem overly happy about it. After the two days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. They said, Rabbi, you can't do that. The Jews are out to kill you and you're going back. Not long before these events, Jesus and had been on the other side of the River Jordan <coughs> and performing miracles. When the Jews had asked him, are you God's chosen one? Jesus could have said yes, and that might have been the end of their questioning. But instead, he said, I am the son of God. The father and I are one. How do you think that the Jews reacted to this? They tried to stone him. So going back there was likely to mean trouble. Jesus replied, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight doesn't stumble, because there's plenty of light from the sun. Walking at night, he might very well stumble, because he can't see where he's going. This is Jesus linking back to his earlier teachings about being the light to the world, but also the idea that he was not in any real danger as his day was not done. He said these things and then announced, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go and wake him up. The disciples said, Master, if he's gone to sleep, He'll get a good rest and then wake up feeling fine. Jesus was talking about death, while his disciples thought that he was talking about taking a nap. This is something which we say today without thinking about it. We don't yet like using the word dead or death. So we use every word or phrase that we can think of to avoid saying it. 
Apparently every region in Britain has a different way of saying it. They've gone to sleep. They've gone. Late. Passed away. Pushing up daisies. Kicked the bucket. Resting in peace. Expired. Departed. Checked out. Why do we do this? Do you think Jesus was saying this for the same reason? Was he trying to avoid talking about death? Or was it simply that he was pointing out that this was a temporary state for Lazarus? Then Jesus became more explicit. Lazarus has died. And I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. You're about to be given new grounds for believing. Now let's go to him. <coughs> so was this then the reason for Jesus' waiting? So that when he brought Lazarus back from the dead, it would be a greater proof of who he was than simply healing him. What do you think? That's when Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his companions, Come along, that we might die with him. When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away. Jerusalem was near when Jesus heard the news that Lazarus was ill. Even with waiting two days before beginning his journey, it was likely that Lazarus was dead by the time Jesus had got there. In fact, he would have been dead by the time he would have received the news of him being ill. After all, it was not like you could simply call or email Jesus. You had to walk to where he was. You had to find him. However, the fact that four days is mentioned is important. There was an ancient tradition in that region that after three days, the soul of the person had completely left the body and not even the gods could have brought that person back. It is not a teaching found in the Bible, but the people of the region would have been familiar with the idea. And so for Jesus to do what he does next shows him to be more powerful than the pagan gods and reveals something to us about the love and power of God. We are never so far gone that God can't bring us back. We're never so dead in our sin that things separate us from God. That God cannot bring us back to life in him. Many of the Jews who were visiting Martha and Mary sympathised with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, 
Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, he will give to you. It's amazing that Martha seems to immediately show greater and deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's capable of. Far greater than the disciples. Even if she still does not fully believe it. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know that he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You see, the Jews had no real concept of heaven as somewhere where people go to when they die. Instead, they believed that the faithful would be brought back to life on the final day. She believed in Jesus, but still is tied to her Jewish roots. You don't have to wait for the end. I am, right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. If only we had such great faith. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here and asking for you. The moment that she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathising Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking that she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you'd been here, then my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing, and the Jews with her were sobbing. You see, the Jews went very heavily into mourning. They would have had three days of heavy mourning. Four days of heavy mourning and then continue in lighter mourning for the remainder of the 30 days. It wasn't a show. It wasn't over the top. It was openly wearing your grief in order to deal with it. When Mary and the Jews were sobbing, this was still within the heavy mourning period. This was the opportunity to get all of the sadness out in the open to share the burden with the whole community. Jesus saw this, saw her sobbing and saw the Jews with her sobbing. A deep anger welled within him. He said, where did you put him? The words used to describe the deep anger are a combination of anger and being deeply shaken. In the original Greek. 
Jesus is greatly moved by the grief outpoured all around him. I mean, how would you feel? Which leads us to the shortest verse in many of the translations. In the message it reads, Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply that he loved them, loved him. Others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up in him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Even as Jesus moves towards one of his greatest miracles, the greatest example of his divinity, we see the greatest example of his humanity as well. When was the last time that you were moved to tears or anger by something that you'd seen? It is part of human nature to feel hurt when we see others hurting, to smile when we see the joy of others. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there's a great stench. He's been dead for four days. In the King James Version of the Bible it says, He stinketh. Martha is being the Martha that we're familiar with from elsewhere in the Bible. A woman of immense faith, but also immense practicality. It's tempting to think that she has a lack of faith in Jesus at this point. But in reality, she just has no idea what Jesus has planned. If this can be seen as a story describing how we're brought back to life after being dead in our sin, separated from God in the things that we've done wrong. How true is it that at the point of this healing, we stinketh? Like the prodigal son who'd been sitting in the pig poop, trying to elbow out Pepper and Porky just to get some food to survive. While we're still lost, we stinketh. Giving our lives to Christ and putting our faith in him changes this. It cleans us up. It makes us whole. It makes us smell fresh again. Now Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Then to the others. Go, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed. Father, thank you that you have listened to me. I know that you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I have spoken so that they might believe that you have sent me. Thank you. 
It's interesting, he says thank you. The Greek word used in this prayer is eucharisteo, which we recall from chapter 3 means to express love and overflowing joy with thanksgiving and heartfelt gratitude. No prayer asking asking God to bring Lazarus back. No, simply a sweet-smelling prayer of thanksgiving for that which Jesus knew God was already at work doing. This shows us just how close the intimate relationship between Jesus and the Father truly is. Prayer can be a difficult thing for us at times, especially if it's something big. But God already knows what we want and need before we even ask for it. But all too often, we forget to say thank you, which is by far the most important part of the prayer. (coughs) Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver wrapped from head to toe with a kerchief over his face. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him loose. At this point, I can't help but have an amusing picture of Lazarus in my head. If he was, as the Bible states, still wrapped up head to toe, he would have had to hop out of the tomb. So what does this story teach us? John included it in his gospel for a reason. It is one of several miracles that are included that we might know that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. But I think it is also a reminder to us that Jesus was also a human being. Every single thing that Jesus did as a human being show that he was fully human, complete, but with an unshakable faith in God. This is why he said in John chapter 14, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact do greater works than these. Jesus was in a state of constant prayer, always talking to and relying on God. The second point of this story is also prayer related. God is not there to grant all our requests. He's not the genie from Aladdin. But there is a point to all that he does, even when we do not understand it. We may feel hurt when God says no, or not yet, but we can trust that if we put our faith in him, our ultimate destiny, the ultimate outworking of God's plan, is set. And because I'm a good Methodist preacher, I have a third point that's also on prayer. It's simply the point that we need to remember to thank God to thank God for hearing us and answering our prayers. 
It is in fact the most important part of prayer in my opinion, as it's the part that shows our faith, just as Jesus did. In an episode of The Simpsons, the son, Bart, is praying that God would cancel school next day by sending snow or something in order that he can escape and have a repeat oral book report that he'd not studied for. He prays, well, old timer, I guess that this is the end of the road. I know I haven't always been a good kid, but if I have to go to school tomorrow, I'll fail the test and be held back. I just need one more day to study. I need your help. A teacher strike, a power failure, a blizzard, anything that will cancel school tomorrow. I know it's asking a lot, but if anyone can do it, you can. Thanking you in advance, Bart Simpson. How often do we pray like that? Out loud and fully confident that God will answer us. So confident that we thank God in advance of the answer. It should be noted, of course, that God answers Bart's prayer with a blizzard. Bart studies and later passes his test and he proudly tells his dad that part of this D- minus belongs to God. We are called to be like Christ and often we excuse this. We make excuses when we fail like I'm only human. But Jesus was human and he taught us all that if we are in God we can be so much more. Now did you catch it? Did you spot it? The particular verse within the Bible readings about the illness which Lazarus had got. It's where Jesus says that this disease, this illness is not fatal, but that actually it is there to show the glory of God. Now, the sermon that I would have written and would have um, preached this morning had I been in the church would have probably been around that particular message. Because with the way that the virus COVID-19 is spreading across the world at the moment, it may not always be fatal. For many, it isn't. But for all of us, there is the opportunity for the glory of God to be shown. But how is the glory of God being shown when we're all confined to our homes in the way that we are? I think the glory of God is being shown in the way that people are caring for each other, the way that people are reaching out to each other, the way people are delving deeper into prayer than they ever have done before, the way more people are listening to podcasts like this, are engaging with worship online, are calling each other to make sure each other are fine, are checking to see if people around them 
have the things that they need and if they don't are going and getting them for them if they can't go out themselves. This is the glory of God being shown in the world. This is this illness showing that actually people are inherently good and of God and care for one another. Thank you all for listening. I'm going to go off now to cough to my heart's content. Keep safe. Stay healthy. Goodbye. Thank you.